forever. Dog! Good eternity, everybody. It is I, God, the Lord Almighty, known as Jehovah to his close friends, of whom I have none. Joined, as always, by my delightful sidekick, the adolescent Joan of Arc. Hello, Joan. Hello, my lord. And I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I sometimes would like to think that I'm your friend. Joan, I totally get that. Also with me is Jesus Christ, my son and our producer and your redeemer. Hello, Mr. Christ. Hi. Love that kid. <laughs> he's so sweet. He's a he's a he's a good kid. He's he is as sweet as he sounds. And speaking of that, he's now doing a new thing, which I think is another example of how Jesus Christ makes the world a better place. He just signed up for Cameo. Ooh. Cameo, of course, is the service where celebrities are able to leave personalized messages for their fans. And I would I to me, I don't know, I'm biased. I think Jesus Christ is kind of a celebrity. I think he's a yeah. little famous, I think to, to some extent. Not everybody is the first name you yell out every time you smash yourself in the thumb with a hammer. Exactly. But he is. So uh, he's doing some cameo stuff. Jesus, just uh, delight us, if you would, with a little sample of some of your cameo work. Hi, I'm Jesus. What happens when a duck flies upside down? He quacks up. Happy birthday. Jesus, I'm going to take it. That was for a, a, a younger person, right? Uh, yes, yes. That's a new hip joke. Right, because you don't work blue when they're under 18. Yeah. Right. I leave out the pussy material there. Oh, my. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you, you, you don't go with the R-rated material when you're working with children. Not to be outdone, my delightful partner in crime here, Ms. Ark, has also joined Cameo. This is a, she I, just, it's brand it's new, new, so you haven't yeah. even done any of them yet. No, no. I, I haven't done any. I'm so nervous. and But I'm just kind of thinking about, like, where I would excel at Cameo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say, like, go with what you know. So so maybe, like, if you have a friend who is going off to battle, I could uh, encourage them and tell them what I learned in battle. I could teach them about my armor. I could tell them, you know, how to ration, things like that. Or, um, oh, 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 like if you have a family member or friend who's about to be burned at the stake, I could give them advice and tell them how to prepare. Or, uh, uh, I mean, I guess what I would tell them is it gets better. May I ask in what sense it gets better? Well, it gets better if you go to heaven, are sainted, and become God's sidekick on his podcast. So that would be the path I would advise them to take. Right, but that's not really up to them as much, is it? And also, once once you're once they light the fire yeah. on the stake, from then on, it does not get better in any way, shape, or form. Well, but it that's, really, it gets worse. It's hard to say, and I feel like for cameo, I should do like uplifting messages. Do you think I'm better off like just sticking with birthdays or? Oh well, that's what I did. See, I, that, that's what I did. I was on cameo once. I, wa- I thought I would be able to make a lot of money for the church or the synagogue or the mosque or whichever monotheism I'm supporting Aww. on any given day. Uh, I made left one message and I was afterwards asked to leave. Cameo asked me to withdraw. Can you hear it? Uh, I mean, I don't. I'll do it now. Hi, Marjorie. This is God. 
And a little angel told me somebody is turning 10 tomorrow. Happy birthday. Wow, I can't believe I created you 10 years, 9 months, and 1 day ago. Hey, I'm sorry you're spending this birthday in the hospital. And the last one. And the one before that. As Mom and Dad have told you many times these last few years, I work in mysterious ways and, well, I guess one of them is that funny little bump on your head. But something tells me this is the year that problem goes away, and all your other problems too. So happy birthday, Marjorie! Looking forward to seeing you soon. Wow. Hindsight 2020, I can, I, I see the objection. It was well produced. It was well produced. Well, I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't half-ass these things. Look at the earth, you know. So what I'm working on now is a service called Damio. Oh. And with Damio, if you ask me, I will personally contact somebody and damn them to hell for for eternity. Wow. So uh, um, how much are you charging for that? The same as you charged for the cameo or? Oh, no, it's free. It's free. Uh, I, I'll do it for free. I just, I really enjoy doing it. So look for that Damio. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun, fun new service. Uh, well, we've, we've got over a lot of time for oh, the top right. O of the show or TOTS, as I like to acronym it. I think it's now time for oh. our Patwa. You know what Patwa is, oh, wait, Joan? Wait. Prayer of the week! Prayer of the week! Prayer of the week! Prayer of the week. Again, every week I answer one prayer. This is that prayer. Joan, what do we have? All right. Um, this week our prayer is from Mimsy Mandark. And it says, Oh, almighty God. Good start. As you know, Lord, my boyfriend and I love each other very much and plan on getting married in the future. I am ready for him to pop the question, but he insists that he is waiting on you to give him a sign for the right moment. Oh, Lord, I ask of you, what sign will you give him? Often this is where I would interject some kind of snarky remark about how they're mm-hmm. not made for each other, that they're a bad couple, but they actually are a terrific couple. The, the, the man's name is Vance Aww. in this question. And the woman's name, as you said, was Mimsy Mandark. Mm -hmm. That's, by the way, not her screen name. That's her actual name is Mm. Mimsy Mandark. And I do like them as a couple. You know what, Mimsy Mandark? I'm going to do you one better than simply a sign. Vance is sleeping right now. And I, and Joan, you'll come with me. The two of us are going to enter his dream. And tell him in a dream that it is time for him to pop the question. Joan, you coming with me? Yes, thank you. Okay, we're going to enter the world of dreams. One, two, three. (gasps) We're in the quiet, (gasps) mysterious, fluffy world of dreams, Joan. This is so cool. Isn't it cool? And now we're going to enter Vance's dream. There we are. (gasps) We're in Vance's dream. As you can see, he's currently... Taking a test in college and naked and failing and his teeth are falling out. But let's interrupt that dream because we have an important message for him. Dream is interrupt us. That's <laughs> it's a little risque for you, Joan. Joan, could you do me the honor of just introducing him so that he's ready for me yes. when I talk to him? Yes, my lord. Here we go. Vance, I am Joan of Arc. 
And I am here with God, who has a message for you. Was that okay? Yes, yes, okay, here you Okay, thank you. Vance! Vance, what the hell are you doing? You're with a good woman! Mimsy Mandark is a great woman, and you are leaving her in the lurch. It is high time for you to pop the question. Don't you want happiness? Don't you want that woman to be smiling? If for some reason he does not pop the question, there are two pieces of advice that I would offer her. A, drop the zero. B, get with the hero. Those would be my two pieces of advice. Mm, I love when you say that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's true. It's true. And you know how it's true? Because that rhymes. By definition, that is true. So um, she wanted a clear sign. Uh, Do you think that will work? It doesn't get any clearer than that. I, I, I picture it. You're Vance. You're dreaming. You're naked. You're taking a test. You're failing. Your teeth are falling out. Joan of Arc enters on a horse. She introduces God. God berates you for 30 seconds in a voice straight out of an officer and a gentleman and tells you to propose. And then you wake up. Yeah, pretty, pretty clear. I hope that works out. Vince, do what you have to do. That was Prayer of the Week. Prayer of the Week! Coming up, my interview with Penn Gillette, one half of the legendary team, Pen and Pencil. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. We have a terrific episode of Office Hours Live prepared for you. We had the great stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane come in and a very special in-studio music session from legendary Emdu Mokhtar. You're not going to want to miss this one. You can find it on your podcast app of choice by going to Sears or Macy's and getting an iPod and then coming home, charging it up, and listening through your app. Magician, writer, political activist, actor, inventor, TV host, and upright bassist, Penn Jillette <laughs> is a true Renaissance man. He's also one of the world's best-known atheists and author of the 2011 New York Times bestseller, God No, Signs You May Already Be an Atheist, and Other Magical Tales. So for me, this interview figures to be pretty awkward. Please welcome Penn Jillette. Very nice. Very nice to see you, God. Uh, I've... Uh... I've wanted to, for a long time, be able to uh, communicate with God, and now I have that opportunity. See, I'm not even sure that's true. I know you don't believe in me, but I also don't know if you necessarily even want to believe in me. Do you want to believe in me? Many atheists that I know, many, will talk about how they wish they had the solace of believing in God. And finally, there was an essay by Hitch, uh, Christopher Hitchens, where he talks about how uh, wanting— to have a god is like wanting to live in North Korea. Um, it's, uh, I don't think that I would get solace 
from believing in God or in you. I don't, I don't think I would. Uh, there was always this challenge laid down, like this gauntlet thrown down by, um, I guess I can't say friends, but acquaintances, where they would say to me, I was very close to my parents. They would say to me, um, well, are your parents still alive? And I would say, uh, yes. And they'd say, well, you know, when your parents die, you'll see how important God is to you. You know, you'll see how atheism works then. Uh, I mean, they wouldn't say it in those words, but uh, in slightly kinder versions of that. So um, when my mother and my father were dying, with all those emotions rushing in, I also had this kind of challenge, like, where's your atheism going to be now? And I found great solace in atheism. There wasn't a moment that I'd wish there was a God because it was easier for me to accept the fact that my mother was suffering so and being taken from me for that to be random chance rather than there was some sort of force in the universe that was choosing to have this happen. So what would be your rationale for uh, causing suffering to a uh, woman that I love that much? Well, I think you and everyone know the answer to that question. The answer is I work in mysterious ways. When I say I work in mysterious ways, what that effectively means is shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up, shut up. And as I've often said, I also failed to work in extremely obvious ones. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is very true. That is very true. But works in mysterious ways, I believe, is not in the Bible. That's not in the Word of God. No, it's true. That's someone saying later. Um, you've never quoted as saying that you work in mysterious ways. That's someone else speaking for you. But I can hear what you're saying about, about the grief involving your, your, your parents' death and— I can hear the rationale why you found solace in the randomness of it all. What about the oft-stated belief, which is also a cliche, a famous line, there are no atheists in foxholes. If you're in a war, if you're fighting and you are got bullets flying all around you and you may be about to die any second, allegedly no one is an atheist at that point. Do you agree with that? I believe that was just an assertion. I mean, I don't think that was ever said with any evidence. Uh, I do know atheists who've been in combat. As a matter of fact, I was gifted the uh, the, the dog tags of a decorated um, veteran who was the first person to have atheist on a dog tag. That was in the uh, early '60s. That came um, that came pretty late, actually, uh, to be able to have the word uh, atheist on your dog tags. And I now have those dog tags. And there is a group called atheists and foxholes that uh, that are in the military and remain atheist. Um, I have found myself, I have had uh, a gun pulled on me, and I have been wicked, wicked sick. There was a time I was not living anywhere, I guess you could say homeless, when I was uh, uh, juggling and doing magic on the streets and hitchhiking around the country, that I was around dangerous characters. So I can't claim to have been in a foxhole, but I've claimed to have thought that I was uh, perhaps moments from death and felt no urge to cry out to you whatsoever. Now, you could probably say that 
I didn't really know I was going to die because I didn't die. But you're saying that atheists who have died have gone to you afterwards and said in the last moment they cried out. Is that right? I'm not saying that. I, I don't talk about what happens after death. That's a spoiler thing, and I don't I don't talk about it. But what I will say in response to you not reaching out to me at your moments of weakness, my response is thank you. Thank you so much. Because I get that all the time. And it's so annoying. The last thing I need is another one of you people. I don't mean you, Penn. You're better than the common scum. But most of the people reaching out to me saying, help me, help me. You know, and it's usually it's not about their imminent death. It's usually about Jimmy has a karate meet on Saturday and he's been working so hard and he needs to get plaque. I don't like, I don't care. Don't care. But you do hear all of it? I hear all of it in the same way that if you're in a crowded subway and there's background noise all around you and you're lost in your own head, you technically take in the sound waves into your brain, but you do not process them. They remain in the foyer, as it were, of the mind. Seven billion people on the planet. There must be four or five million crying out in, 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 in mortal jeopardy Every second, right? At any given moment, it's interesting. There's a roughly equal number of people praying to me and masturbating. It's almost the exact same amount, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on what time it is and what's on television that night in various areas. But And uh, what number, if we Venn diagram those two, yeah, uh, where's the intersection? What percentage? It's a very small intersection, but I can tell you without giving much away that the people who are in the intersection, the people who are simultaneously masturbating and praying, they're going to hell. That That's certainly, <laughs> they're going to hell. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody that that's what's going to happen to them. Now, what if what about those who uh, at orgasm cry out with your name? Yeah, you know, I've discussed this on the show before. I, I don't get that. At that moment, why would you want to bring me into it. I just, I just don't, I guess it's because I represent the a sort of a universal life force of creativity and you're summoning maybe God in the way of summoning the oneness with the universe that you might feel. But it's, it's not like I wasn't, here's the thing. It's not like I wasn't watching anyway. I was watching anyway. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I was watching the whole thing. I was watching your five minutes of desperate, pathetic thrashing. And I don't need to be notified that it's about to end. I guess if you were giving my credentials uh, of, of atheism, I think the strongest credential I have, and this is actually true, and I don't think I've ever admitted this before, but I am such an atheist that I have actually had sex with people who have said, oh God, and then apologized to me. <laughs> Within the moment of passion. Wow. I thought you were going to say that that you asked them to apologize, but no, they they spontaneously, spontaneously. volunteered to because they felt bad for your sake. Yeah. Would you have asked them to apologize? It seems way out of line. Seems way out of line. Yeah. Yeah. I am much more forgiving than you are. I, I think that that's pretty clear. <laughs> you mentioned everyone knows you're a wonderful magician, but as you mentioned just now, you started out as a juggler. Yes. And I don't think people realize what an amazing juggler you were. I know you kind of walked away from it essentially 50 years ago at this point, but tell people what a good juggler you were cuz I've read about this and you were you were you were world class. I was I was good for the time. I mean that's uh uh that's the interesting thing. Everybody knew that the internet would be astonishing for science and for sex. Nobody knew it would end up with 
white power and hate groups and a crazy president. And they also didn't know that it would make juggling better. Knowing something's possible changes everything. I'm guessing the performance appeal of juggling, it's its so obviously a meditative practice. It's so obviously something that just requires an extraordinary concentration. The appeal to me was that it was binary. The motherfuckers are in the air or they're on the ground. <laughs> and no amount of argument and no amount of sophistry can explain why they're on the ground. As someone living without God, the idea that there is one facet of my life that I can't talk my way out of is really important to me. As you know, there are aspects of, of the binary thing going on in religion, as in you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. You're a sinner or you're a saint. There is no lack of binaryness but in no one Western agrees. religion. No one here agrees. We've seen, we've seen this in many, many countries. People who believe themselves to be extremely religious believe that other people who are just that level of religious are going to hell. So it is, uh, I, uh, I beg to differ from the information we have within this closed system. There is no binary going to heaven or going to hell. I see what you're saying. You're absolutely right. I keep forgetting that I actually know who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. Sure. For me, it is binary because I'm, you know, I make the rules. But for human beings, for the, for the, for the scum like you, I get it. It's not, it's not as crystal clear. You know, that's the problem with Pascal's wager, of course, right? Is that, yes, you could fake believing in God. God would see through you. That's one problem with it. But the other problem is, which God do you believe in? You know that ultimately Pascal had to call Gamblers Anonymous, right? He he was he <laughs> he, he he had a real problem. Um, for you, yeah. was 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 juggling and magic were those two things appealing at the same time, or did, did magic the juggling lead to magic or the reverse? Oh, the story is um, it's just perfect. I believed in science. I was a big science fan. I was a very good student, and then uh, a scumbag named Kreskin, was on a talk show selling his shitty little ESP kit, which I believed was science. My parents bought that kit for me, and I went with the little pendulum with the uh, you know idiomatic movements and all of that stuff and kept track of ESP cards. And then um, in the Dewey Decimal System, which you're probably one of the only ones who still remembers, juggling and magic and, incidentally, religion are fairly close to each other. And in our little small town library of Greenfield, Massachusetts, I had read the three juggling books that they had there. There were three juggling books in the library, which is a very well-stocked small town library for juggling. But there were about 25 magic books. And I picked up one and happened to see a trick very similar to the trick that had been done on the talk show by Kreskin. And I realized that this was an adult claiming to be a scientist who had lied to me. And my grades went from very, very good to very, very bad. And my hatred for scientists and magicians, which at that time became the same for me, was overwhelming. So I became a juggler 100%. And I hated magicians because magicians were simply liars. 
absolutely liars. And I had, I mean, nobody else in the world would make a moral case for why you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't like magic. But I did. And I liked juggling and music, and I did not like magic. And then I met Teller, and then I met Amazing Randy, and they told me uh, this radical idea that you could do magic while essentially telling the truth. And that conversation about how that could be done, we have now kept up for, you know, over over 45 years. And you have also spread that art to other people, other great magicians out there who use their own variations on that theme of not lying, not claiming any kind of supernatural presence, but actually being uh, honest about it. I just watched uh, Derek Delgadio's show. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. What was Teller like when you met him? Like the first day you met him, what 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 was he the 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 nascent quiet genius that we know of today, or was he different? When I first met Teller, he was uh, pretending to be blind, selling pencils and reciting poetry that he'd written in Latin. Okay, so about the same. Yeah, <laughs> about the same. Uh, there was a group in Amherst, Massachusetts called um, the Otmar Sheck Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual and Disgusting Music. And Otmar Sheck uh, was a Swiss composer who wrote a song cycle about being buried alive. And uh, there was a guy at Amherst College who put together these musical extravaganzas like um, PDQ Bach, kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, he would do like the Mr. Ed Cantata and he would do like uh, Beethoven's Ninth on all very unusual instruments. He had graduated from college and so had Teller, but I was still in high school. I bought a stereo at a stereo store that this guy, Weir Christmer, was working at. I mentioned that I was a juggler. And he said, could you play the bass drum part to Beethoven's Ninth while juggling? And I said, well, what's the part? And he sang it to me. as in so much as you can sing a bass drum part. And uh, I said, yeah, I can learn to do that. And then he said, if we were playing the saber dance, could you learn to throw plungers so they stuck to a wall, like knife throwing, but with plungers? And I said, well, I have learned to practice. And most people don't know how to practice, but I do. That's my superpower. So I can spend the 100 hours it'll take to do this so I can do that. So at 17 years old, I was performing with all college students and graduates from college in this Otmarschek Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual Disgusting Music. And uh, when you're 17, someone 20 or 21 is wicked old. I mean, they're real grownups, you know. So I was I was juggling there. And uh, uh, Weir Christmer also knew Teller, who was a few years older than him. Teller's seven years older than me. So he had brought Teller up, who was a high school. Uh, Teller taught a high school Latin and Greek in Trenton, New Jersey, which you'll have to tell me, what level of Dante's hell is that? Uh, Trenton makes the world takes. That's their famous motto. So that would be the, seventh, oh, no. the seventh layer of hell. Yeah. It is, but 
you don't know what the Trenton people say. What do the Trenton people say? The world excretes Trenton eats. Yes. <laughs> Trenton, New Jersey. Yes. Home to Governor Chris Christie back in the day and many other wonderful, wonderful things. Trenton makes the world takes. One of the most kind of angry, passive aggressive statements that a town has ever made. Even Camden laughs at Trenton. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's where Teller was. And Teller was teaching high school Latin and Greek in Trenton, New Jersey, because of Vietnam. Teller very, very badly wanted a teaching deferment. So Teller showing his tenacity more than having his name on Broadway or having a theater named after him in Vegas was able to get a teaching job with Latin and Greek in 1968. In Trenton, New Jersey. He didn't care where it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because when you're saying there's no place worse than Trenton, New Jersey, you can think, well, in 1968, possibly Vietnam. Yeah, probably Vietnam, probably. Probably Vietnam. So he had put his show business career on hold to become a teacher to not go uh, to Vietnam to be in a foxhole to cry out to you, which I believe he would have started crying out to you in boot camp. So he was there reciting Latin poetry about Otmar Sheck while selling pencils as you went into the uh, theater. And right there, for people who don't know Teller, the idea that he's supporting himself by talking all day in Latin yes. and Greek is paradoxical right there. And then you also have the fact that if you want to make the joke, that he was speaking a dead language, (laughs) (laughs) which makes it pretty terrific. And um, we began talking. It was amazing because I was talking to grownups who weren't teachers or parents, which you know was that first moment when you get to do that, when when you're first talking to people older than you that have jobs in kind of any sort of peer situation is a huge moment at uh, at 17 or 18, especially in our culture that doesn't mix ages like so many other, that segregate ages so, uh, so oddly as we do in, in this culture. So we began talking and Teller said he was doing magic. And um, I started my rant about hating magic and it being lying. And Teller started talking about how you could tell the truth and how you could put a frame around it. That conversation continued when I got out of high school, which, as you know, graduated is too strong a word. It was kind of a plea bargain. <laughs> uh, I uh, went to Ringley Brothers Barnum Bailey, greatest show on earth, Clown College. Yes, and you majored there in quantum physics, I read, yes, which I is did. really <laughs> weird. How did so, that happen? Yeah. It was very odd. Uh, they don't only have a bachelor's in buffoonery. Right. They also have a fairly good but underrated science department. Who knew? I knew, but no, most people didn't know. Yeah. So it was uh, – that's what I – a lot of people think if you went to clown college, you were just walking tight wires and falling down. But there's a whole other thing you could do there in the college experience. And then I got a, um, I got a job at a Minnesota Renaissance Festival. There's about a year or two of being homeless in there. Then I get a job at a uh, Renaissance festival, juggling. And I asked if I could bring along this magician because Teller 
had been doing his teaching. He'd written a, a level of textbooks. He was he was tenured. He was he was to be a Latin teacher the rest of his life. He had no doubt about that. And then about once every month, he would do a magic show in a library basement. I called him up and said, I can get a gig for you at this Minnesota Renaissance Festival. Do you wanna do you wanna do it with me? And Teller said, when does it start? And I said, August. And he said, that's perfect. Absolutely. Yes. And he said, when does it end? And I said, October. And he said, oh, I have to be back teaching school then. And I said, as a snotty, idealistic, without a job guy, oh, I thought you were a magician and not a teacher. I guess I misunderstood and hung up the phone. Nice, nice move. <laughs> and 45 minutes later, Teller called and said, I will not quit teaching, but I will take a leave of absence in order to work on magic. And I believe on the books, Teller is still on his leave of absence from the high school he taught at Lawrence High. Wow. And was he as brilliant a magician then? No. No, he did not practice. He was sloppy. He had highfalutin ideas that he never quite did right. But that's just starting out. That's true for everybody, you know. But the interesting thing, I think, is that there's other repercussions in the show business world. Because John Stewart was signed up to take Latin and Greek with Mr. Teller. The year he left. Wow. Teller had a reputation for being a very good teacher. And John Stewart had decided he was going to pull it together. And he was going to seriously take Latin and Greek the next year and study with Mr. Teller. And he had signed up that very summer to start the next year with Mr. Teller studying Latin and Greek. And inevitably, John would have become a Latin scholar and hosted the the Quotidian show or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. Showbiz history changed forever. Forever. And, And John has told us over and over again that his only goal in life was to be more famous than the Latin teacher who went on to become a magician who let him down by not teaching him Latin. And John still has a chip on his shoulder about Teller not staying around to teach one more year. And he blames me. Coming up, Penn tells us why Penn and Teller is so much better than Abbott and Costello, who suck. In every great long-lasting entertainment duo dynamic, each side gives the other side something. Each side offers the other side something. What What is the biggest thing that you've given Teller and the biggest thing that Teller's given you, you know, in terms of personality or work ethic or aesthetic or anything like that? When you've worked as long as we have, you know, which is 46 years now, and that's continuous. Teller and I have never gone three weeks without working together. And you find out not only do you teach each other things, but your skills absolutely atrophy. The skills the other person has just go away. Teller is the director of the show. Teller does all the visual stuff. Teller does all of that. 
the joke is among our crew that Teller doesn't talk on stage and I don't talk off stage uh, because during rehearsals, I don't say a word. Teller does all the lighting, all the layout, all the staging, all the props, works with the crew. If you were to go to one of our rehearsals, final dress rehearsal, or, you know, write, write tech rehearsals for like Broadway or something, you would see a one-man show being put together by Teller, and you would see a dark figure way in the back reading the paper who was asked two questions a day, eight-hour rehearsal, two questions a day, while Teller says, Penn will stand here and talk, then he'll walk over here and talk, <laughs> then he'll move over here. So what you're kind of asking, you know, in um, in comedy teams – we always kind of know who the brains are. You know, in The Three Stooges, it was Mo. In Laurel and Hardy, it was very clearly Laurel. In The Marx Brothers, it was very much Groucho. Uh, Abbott and Costello did not have any brains. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had no leader. They're the two most incompetent, stupidest people ever put together to be successful, Abbott and Costello. And in that way, an inspiration. They even changed their name to Costello and Abbott. Did you know that? Yeah, of course I do that. I'm God. I, I know a number of things. But Abbott really wanted to go into television. Lou Costello believed it was a dead end. <laughs> television was going nowhere. So they negotiated to go into television. And Costello said if they changed their name to Costello and Abbott for six months, he would do the TV gig. So that's the level of stupid you're working with there. With Penn and Teller, Teller is the brains. Uh, Teller is the one that keeps things organized and going, and he's the one that does the, um, uh, the direction. I'm the one that makes sure it actually gets done. I can practice, but I can't rehearse. Those two things are very, very different. I can go in a room and do the same thing over and over again a thousand times. When it comes to being with other people and running through material, I mumble, I look down, I never give any of my energy to any rehearsal ever. I'm not present. Teller cannot practice, but he can rehearse. He loves the process. He loves collaborating. He loves all the crew people. He loves knowing all their names and what they do. And he loves looking at drawings of things. And he loves people reporting back to him. And he loves checklists. So Teller, if he had his way, would rehearse forever and the show would never be done. If I had my way, we would go on stage tonight without anything prepared whatsoever. And somewhere in between those two is the happy medium you guys have worked at for 46 years. Exactly. And it's exactly right in the middle. Because, you know, Teller, working in Trenton, was never going to finish his magic show. He had notes for it. He loved working on it. He was never going to do it. And I have always been willing to walk out on stage where there was a microphone and do 10 minutes. <laughs> With nothing planned. You know, even our TV shows, we've done stuff like said, well, I'll just do something in here and get us from point A to point B. 
something you said earlier that might surprise people. You said that over time, your skills atrophy. Now, that, that's something I can associate with an athlete getting older. I can associate that with, with, a, with a basketball player. But I, I, it's hard to imagine what, what skills atrophy as a magician that you could do with more ease 30 years ago. Well, I don't mean so much as a magician as generally in theater. Like if I were working alone or with someone else, I might have had to speak to a lighting person. I might have had to learn <laughs> where upstage and downstage was. I am coddled by Teller. You know, at the end of all this work he does with the crew, he says, Penn, you walk on here, you stand here, then you walk over there, then reach in your pocket, palm the card, <laughs> you know, do the trick, and then you walk off over there. You're a married couple having a party and the wife says, Penn, we're going to have 20 people over. You're going to be nice. You're going to show them the trick you do. You're going to sit here. You're going to be nice. And I will yeah. take care of everything. Is that kind of what it is? Exactly. But I'll also tell you, if a certain kind, I do a certain kind of false shuffle better than Teller. I palm with my left hand, Teller palms with his right hand. So if something's happening with the audience out there, we just do that. And if we have a skill that one of us has to do, but only one of us has to do. The other one just never worked on that skill more. When we first started out, we had a very romantic notion of how a team worked. And we thought we had to do everything together. So when we had to do like radio ads or interviews, Taylor would show up with me because he felt like we were putting the hours in. We were, we were both brought up with, with, with uh, parents who were very hardworking. You know, my dad was a jail guard. Teller's dad was a commercial artist. Very, very hardworking. We had mothers that, you know, my mother worked as a secretary. Teller's mother worked at, uh, at a department store. The work ethic was drilled into us beyond belief. So when we first started working together in show business, we didn't understand that show business was a different job. So we would show up at nine o'clock, both of us, and then one of us would work on whatever they had to do while the other one sat there because we had to be at work. And it took us probably five years to learn that when one of us was working, the other one didn't have to be there. So by the time we got to Broadway, uh, I wrote the radio ads and recorded them and Teller only heard them if he happened to be listening to the radio. In the most appalling thing, which the investors and producers were completely freaked out at, the final week of rehearsal on Broadway, I wasn't there for four of the days. Again, this whole thing seems so much like the development of a marriage, of a successful <laughs> marriage, where you start and you think you have to do everything together and you're in it together. And there's no sense of how to create an independent life within the context of a larger shared life. And over time and over the years, if everything goes well with goodwill, you, you figure out how to do that. And, and it lasts. And it clearly has lasted in your case. It was amazing. I mean, I there must be someone else, but I'm hard pressed to find someone that would tell you that their final week of rehearsals in a show that their name was in the title that they were starring in their first time on Broadway, they weren't there. <laughs> it was something that, and the reason was 
because it, it would be exasperating. Sorry, I don't mean to play gotcha with you, but I did talk to Teller briefly before this conversation. I wanted to get his thoughts about you. And he gave me a quote that I thought was, was rather pun intended telling. Jesus, can we play that? There you have it. Uh, does that surprise you? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You know, uh, you tend to um, you tend to build the theory of mind of the other person that's not completely accurate. You know, the teller in my mind is not going to be the the teller in his mind. But we never get. You know, we're we're ships yelling at each other through the fog. You know. Yeah, I got that from what he was saying completely. So your show that you had and teller fool us. The seventh season is about to start on the CW, which apparently is a is a network still. <laughs> if you haven't seen the show, it's fantastic. Magicians come on and try to fool Penn and Teller doing magic. And Penn and Teller, if they know how it was done, they covertly let the magician know how it was done. And if they don't, then the magician uh, wins. And it's surprising to a lot of people that you guys wouldn't know all of this stuff. It's really uh, uh, incredibly cool to see that you yourselves, who many of us regard as the premier magicians in the world, do not know how other premier magicians do some of what they do. Well, you know, there's new stuff being developed all the time. And also there's stuff that we miss. Uh, we've, we've been fooled by stuff that we know. That is the top tier of people who fool us with stuff that we know, that are able to mislead us enough that we don't see something we we understand. But you know, you get into magic, not because you want to fool people, but because you enjoy being fooled. And you end up chasing that first high all the time, because as you learn more, that gets harder and harder. Although it is presented as a competition show, it really kind of isn't in a certain sense, because Teller and I are looking to lose. We are looking for that feeling that so many other people, that most people get watching magic most of the time. That wonderful feeling of that is impossible. I have no idea what happened there. And it gets delivered to us about uh, about 10% of the time. Uh, it's a much more, you know, we first putting the show together, uh, the network and the producers could not understand how honest it would be. They said, well, they'll write how they did it on a card, and then you'll write, and then the third person will decide if you've got it or not. I said, no, no, we'll just look at them, and they'll know. What happens on Fool Us on screen is what happened backstage all the time. I mean, Vegas is the magic capital of the world, and if you are a serious magician, you will end up at least visiting Vegas, and you probably will end up at the Penn and Teller show because you'll probably see all the magicians in town. And we will probably invite you backstage. And when we would sit around the green room backstage, magicians who come to visit from all over the world would say, uh, oh, uh, have you seen this? And they would show us a trick. And at the end of that trick, there was this wonderful moment where they would look up, and I will tell you, mostly a teller, and they would say, uh, teller would say, oh, you did that really well. <laughs> or teller would say, huh, I, I haven't seen that before. And that moment was just so wonderful 
honest, sincere, wrapped around uh, deception, which is kind of a beautiful combination, you know? But it's honest deception. Honest, very honest, yeah. It yeah. used to be that there is a person uh, in, our, in our ears, uh, Mike Close, used to be our mentor, Johnny Thompson, until he died. Um, but Mike Close took over and he's worked with every mag magician on the show and he knows how every trick is done. And then our mics, although they're not going to the audience, are going to the truck and Close is listening to everything we say. So he knows how the trick is done. He listens to us talking and he'll often just come in and go, okay, guys, shut up. You got it. <laughs> no problem. Or he'll come in and say, you are nowhere near it. We might as well move the taping on because you guys are about a thousand miles from where this guy is. And we'll say, really? There was, there was no deck switch? He goes, no deck switch. And we go, and the cards aren't gimmicked? He goes, no. When we come to the bust, ask him to handle the cards. I go, we can handle the fucking cards? And he goes, yeah. And I go, holy shit, we were fooled. He goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You were fooled bad. And we go, wow. And to show you how honest this, this uh, show is, Close will often say to us, I can't tell if you've got it or not. It's very hard. So here's how he did it. Here's how she did it. Were you fooled? And he'll explain the whole trick to us. And we'll go, yeah, we were. Or... No, we, 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 were, we were close enough. We had that. To my little juggler heart, it is very, very gray area. We make, you know, we make decisions on it. But it's really fun. And also, because I'm proud of this, I, I, I want to brag on it. When I speak in code to the magician on how the trick is done, I'm not really speaking to uh, the magician. You know, Mike Nesmith of the Monkees, said that he did the monkeys just for the 12-year-old boy who was going to go on to discover Zappa and Hendrix. That's why he was doing the monkeys. And that was the audience he had in his head all the time. Timmy Leary told him that was the audience he should have. For me, when I'm doing Fool Us, I have a uh, theoretical 16-year-old girl living in Nebraska who desperately wants to learn magic, but does not want to go into a room, an old VFW hall with a bunch of creepy old guys and try to learn it that way. And I'm trying to talk to her, telling her, if you Google everything I've said here, it will take you to areas that'll talk about those terms and if you keep following those, you can learn all of magic. <laughs> now, that's really noble of you. And I know that girl. And she lives in Iowa, actually. Okay. So, that's yeah. okay. That's what I mentioned your podcast, Penn's Sunday School. Nice religious theme again there, Penn. Thank you very much. It's three uh, godless entertainers in Vegas talking about anything that pops into their head. Because we've been doing it so long because we had a radio show before and then moved to podcast for like eight years, we have lost all semblance of originally our mission statement. So really it's just talking 
like we're talking now, except in this case on Sunday school without God, whereas on the uh, on the Godcast it's with God. Penn, you atheist bastard, this has been a fantastic interview. I know you don't believe in me, but I'm going to give you a chance right now. Are there any questions you'd like yes. to ask me before yes. I dissolve into a puff of logic? What was really going on yeah. with the uh, uh, Abraham killing his son thing? It took me a long time to come to terms with that. I sent Abraham. I told him to kill his beloved son that I-, I Well, why'd you want him to kill his son to begin with? I, I felt I wanted him to do it. and. I had this impulse and I made him do it. And then at the last minute I stopped and my angels made me stop and Michael and Gabriel pulled me away and he didn't, but it was on my mind for a long time that I wanted to do that. I thought about it for a long time. I went into therapy. I did, did a lot of counseling. And what I finally realized after a few hundred years is that there's something deeply wrong with me. <laughs> that's it. That's all. That's all it is. Yeah, that's it. And I accepted that. And I'm good with that now. So there's something okay. wrong with me. So, but that, that doesn't bother me. There's something wrong with me. And I'm, you know, it's, I've, I've, I've reached that point of self-acceptance, which is great. I believe we agree completely. Fantastic. Let's leave on that note of harmony. Pendulet, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show and for talking with somebody who doesn't exist, quote, unquote. Well, thank you, God. Wow, what a brilliant and fascinating and humble guy. As I already knew, being God, but still, it's great to be able to share that fact with the world. John, what a guy, right? Yeah, what an what a cool dude. He's really a cool dude. Jesus, did you enjoy that interview? Oh, Pendulette. Oh, what he does is magic. It's, uh, I would call it magic. Uh, what does he do? Like what? Uh, ah, it's the, the king of hearts. Look. And look, I didn't saw that girl in half, but I did, and I put her back together. Jesus, you weren't, uh, you weren't listening at all, were you? Uh, no. <sighs> Son, I know you're a busy man, but next time, less dying for humanity's sins, more producing the damn podcast, okay? Thank you. Well, that's all. Until next week, this is God saying, don't sit. Godcast is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Alex Ramsey, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and David Jabberbaum. Original music by Gabe Lopez. Joan of Arc appears courtesy of Tara Sands. For more original podcasts, visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content from this show and others, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. And if you haven't already, remember to follow God on Twitter at The Tweet of God. Forever Dog!